Welcome to the Frontline Gastroenterology and podcast for the April Twitter debate entitled The Role of Critical Care in Cirrhosis, Futility versus Opportunity. My name is Dr. Manit Mathieu and I'm a gastroenterology registrar in London and training editor for Frontline Gastroenterology. I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Philip Berry, a consultant gastroenterologist at Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospital NHS Trust London. Dr. Berry has a specialist interest in the management of decompensated cirrhosis and approaches to ethical dilemmas on the ward. Welcome, Dr. Berry, and thank you for hosting a very interesting debate. I'd like to start by um, asking you, what, what are your thought processes when faced with a deteriorating patient with cirrhosis on the ward? What's the algorithm that you run through in your head? Well, my first consideration is, is the safety of the patient and the presumption that um, we must do as much as we can to um, salvage the situation if it looks life-threatening um, and apply emergency therapy. Um, but that quickly um, develops into sometimes a quite difficult assessment as to whether the chances of the patient recovering are good enough in our assessment to uh, justify the sometimes uh, prolonged, invasive, and, and burdensome treatments that intensive care can bring. And I think that's a challenge that many hepatologists and general physicians have faced in their careers. And um, we have seen patients um, not do well after long periods on organ support, where in retrospect we thought, well, perhaps you know, they were reaching the end of their life. And that's what um, I've tried to sort of pick apart um, in this debate. Absolutely. That takes me on to my next question, actually. What, in your experience, helps you to identify which patients you think will benefit from escalation to ICU? And how do you make the balance between using the clinical information that you've got ahead of you and your sort of feeling about what's going to be likely to be successful for this patient? It's certainly helpful if you know the patient, and often you do. Uh, They will have come to the service before, and um, you will have seen them through previous illnesses and perhaps even had the luxury of a conversation about what they want in the future if they deteriorate again. But I think that is rare um, to get insight into the patient's goals and how much they value a prolongation of life versus the burdens of treatment is, is quite unusual in my uh, experience. And these patients are often young. Uh, data tells us that alcoholic liver disease, which is the main cause of cirrhosis that we deal with um, is increasingly common in in 30, 40, 50-year-olds, and they are not the patients who necessarily dwell on on their goals, you know, if they deteriorate. So you often have to take it uh, with data that's only available to you, you know, at the time, and you really have to be guided by your physical assessment, um, whether Uh, you feel there is a reversible component, whether it be an infection, um, and then perhaps apply evidence as best you can, but it's a fairly sparse area in terms of the early assessment of of prognosis. Um, There are studies um, over the last couple of years um, uh, that have looked at outcomes in thousands of cirrhosis patients and tried to um, firm up the assessment of prognosis based on the degree of decompensation and the number of organ failures. Um, but applying that data to individuals is notoriously difficult. And do you think scoring systems in practice are used appropriately and effectively, or what's your experience of them in helping you decide on escalating and withdrawing treatment maybe? Yeah, I think they're used rarely. 
And I think um, it's not in our mental toolkit, I think, to calculate scores for patients in front of us. We uh, do it on intensive care units in a sort of um, uh, prospective uh, way, um, almost automatically, because a lot of the data is computerized and you can quickly um, make um, make calculations. But for the frontline clinician in intense, uh, in A&E or the AMU, um, that is difficult. Um, there are basic scoring systems like Child Pew score uh, for liver disease that will essentially tell you whether someone is, is mildly, moderately, or severely unwell. But that's fallible because their underlying status um, may have just changed over the last couple of days. And so the person you see in front of you may be quite different from the person who's been walking around until a few days ago before they got an infection, say. Um, there are more sophisticated scores in alcoholic hepatitis, perhaps a discriminant function, which does give us some insight into prognosis and, and whether to give certain therapy. But again, it doesn't really help you about escalation. Um, and I, I'm increasingly using um, the, the, the Cliff Sofa um, score, which was generated from the canonic data, which was a large European study I, I alluded to earlier on, which on a patient-by-patient patient basis does give you um, a, a cumulative assessment of how many organs are failing and to what degree, and using the, the outcomes they've they've measured can actually give you a percentage chance of dying in 28 days or 90 days. But I think we have to be careful with that because uh, applying large data sets to individuals is always fallible. Um, so my, essentially, the answer to your question is I don't think most physicians are driven by numbers at the bedside. They use their experience. They take in the whole situation. Um, and I'm sure there's always a role for that instinctive experience-based assessment. And I think it will always be at least 50% of, of an accurate assessment. Sure. And you mentioned alcoholic liver disease earlier. So alcohol dependence is alcohol dependence is clearly a complex multifactorial syndrome, but how do you think it influences medical decision-making? Well, this is something I also wanted to try and explore during the debate and to bring us to the subject of uh, conscious or unconscious bias um, against escalating in patients who are perceived to have a history of self-harming behavior. Um, we looked at this in a in a large survey, um, internet survey, asking all sorts of doctors from, from F2s, F1s, to consultant anesthetists and intensivists how they would um, advocate for intensive care support in a series of um, scenarios that we developed, um, eight patients with varying pathologies. And we were quite encouraged to find that the alcohol-related um, patient wasn't um, didn't stand out from the from the crowd in terms of not being sent to ITU, but there were uh, variations in the willingness among the respondents to send that patient to ITU. Some responded to this scenario by saying definitely not, we would palliate on the ward immediately, and some responded by saying let's go to ITU and establish full organ support. So it did demonstrate. A, and this was over 270 respondents, it did demonstrate a real spectrum um, of, of opinion, whether that was driven by the alcohol etiology or differing assessments 
of the clinical situation, I'm not sure, although some people did respond um, to some further questions that the self-harming history would influence their decision um, on the ward at the time. So I think we have to accept and be honest with ourselves, um, however open-minded and, and ethically objective we try to be, that sometimes a strong history of continued um, self-harm might influence our, our assessment. And do you think that we consider palliative care and hepatology appropriately and effectively? And if not, what could we do to optimise this to ensure that we offer our patients best care? There's certainly lots of evidence that we don't. Um, a study uh, in the last couple of years found that only, this was from Dean Carvelis in, in Canada, he found that um, only 11% of patients, I believe, who had been declined a transplant, therefore patients who were definitely you're going to die of their liver disease over the next year or few years. Only 11% of those were referred to palliative services, and there's lots of data suggesting that younger patients um, with liver disease are not referred. The difficulty I find is that patients fluctuate. They may recover, and the natural history of their disease is not constant, and the role of palliative care really in our service, I think, is for the patients who need um, expert input at the time uh, or who have complex symptoms to palliate. Um, so although we can recognize that patients might be in the last year of their lives, whether they will actually benefit from uh, being seen by a palliative care doctor is, is unclear. Um, but I think we need to consider it earlier. And there is some further evidence um, that I've seen that making those earlier referrals actually reduces rehospitalizations and opens up those discussions about goals of treatment and about home-based care. And if you can be confident that somebody really is end stage and, and in the last year or so of life, then I think you can reduce the number of emergency admissions with meeting doctors they don't know, um, agonized decisions about escalation, where some of those decisions can be made earlier on. And I, I think it gives them a bit of control back and they're a bit more empowered to sort of make discussions and decisions with their family on their terms to manage their, their sort of further care, I guess. So there is a benefit if we could optimise that even from an acute medicine point of view. I think we might benefit our patients. Absolutely. And I think we shouldn't necessarily be relying on palliative care specialists to do that. I think as hepatologists, uh, we should accept that a large or gastroenterologists or general physicians, um, a large part of our job is actually to open those discussions, you know, not to be nihilistic and pessimistic about liver patients in general, because recovery can occur, and sometimes there's more complex things going on. You know, there may be a more complex metabolic disorder underlying it, um, or there may be a chance of transplantation, but we should be more comfortable in general with beginning to talk about the utility of, of future hospitalizations and I don't think we should hand that role over to palliative care. I don't think there's the capacity in the palliative care community to lead all those conversations. It's definitely a general physician's or gastroenterologist's role to, to be involved in that. Sure and it's an important skill to develop um, and that takes me on to my final question. So what key messages would you give to trainees in managing feelings of care and end-of-life discussions in patients with cirrhosis? What are your top tips? Well, I think to consider that 
when you see a patient uh, with deteriorating liver disease um, that the future is uncertain and uncertainty should by definition um, encourage you to start using your antenna to, to, to get a feel of whether that patient knows you know, how gravely ill they are. Um, not just to focus on the next 24 or 48 hours of care, but to, to find the right way to, to ask them or find out what they know about their condition and if they understand that it may be gradually progressive and essentially incurable. Um, now, for very junior doctors to do that um, is uncomfortable and, and should be supervised and, uh, unless they're you know, being directly supervised and are comfortable with opening up that potential Pandora's box of problems, then obviously it's not something they should be doing. But I think training in that, um, in that skill set is, is being encouraged more generally. So, so to be aware that there are longer-term issues other than the, the acute problem in front of you um, and to understand and find ways of, of overcoming patients' reluctance to talk about the future. Like I say, this is a young patient group often. There may be a sense of denial because they, they know that alcohol, for instance, has contributed to it. Um, and the whole area of addiction psychology is so difficult and challenging for all of us. Um, there, there may well be you know, increasing roles for alcohol support services and clear signposting to um, support services out in the community. And we should be making sure that patients who are alcohol dependent don't leave the hospital without some sort of interaction with alcohol services or very clear signposting. Thank you very much, Dr. Berry, for a very interesting debate and topical discussion. As well as the podcast, a summary of the debate can be found on www.storify.com forward slash frontgastro underscore bmj forward slash frontline training. Thank you very much. Thank you.